Amen. Our passage tonight is Ecclesiastes 8. There's notes in the back. If you need some of those, you're more than welcome to, to grab a copy of the notes. You can track along with the message tonight. This section of verses that we're looking at falls under the heading of life under the sun. And so we're back from spring break. We were off last week uh, for spring break. We have six total Wednesday nights on this side of spring break, including tonight. So after tonight, we only have five more. In the past, we've normally ran our Wednesday night services all the way through the month of May, but May gets busy. People have uh, end-of-the-year school graduation activities, and it's hard to get all the Awana workers that we need for all the kids that come. And so we're going to end in April this year. We'll try that and see how it goes. So we've got five more uh, Wednesday nights in the book of Ecclesiastes. And since we were on a break last week, I thought we would just start with some basic review for the book of Ecclesiastes. And this goes all the way back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 3 that set the tone for the entire book. So let's just review the basic terms uh, that govern the book of Ecclesiastes. And you're going to see, by the way, all of these terms at one point in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So the first term that you need to be aware of is the word gain. It's an economic term. It is unique to the book of Ecclesiastes. The only Old Testament book that has this particular Hebrew word is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the question is, how can a person come out ahead? Not only financially, but in the grand scheme of things, with all things considered, how can you come out and say, I've found gain? Toil, the word toil, that's anything and everything you do in your life. That includes your work, it includes your hobbies, it includes your church, it includes your uh, sleeping, it includes your yard work, it includes everything. Everything that you do in life falls under this heading of toil. And the phrase under the sun describes not so much a place, that preposition under makes us think about a place, but it's not so much talking about a place as a time. So human beings use the sun to mark time, and this is sort of a, an idiomatic way, a proverbial way of saying, you're on the clock. As soon as you show up here, your clock starts ticking, your life is being lived out under the sun. And the question is, how can you have gain at the end of your life for all of your toil that you toil under the sun? And the conclusion offered at the beginning of the book and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, in most English translations, is the word vanity. It's the Hebrew word hebel, and it literally means smoke, mist, vapor, breath, something that's fleeting. And so we've talked over and over and over again. If you've been here, you know this. This is all just review. That this term hebel doesn't mean everything is meaningless. It simply means everything is racing by and it'll be gone and over before you know it. And there's a passage in chapter 8 where if you don't have that understanding of the term vanity or hebel, the passage makes no sense. It literally makes no sense unless you understand it as saying your life under the sun is exceedingly brief. So here's what the preacher's doing in Ecclesiastes. Those are the key terms. He's saying it is not a given. 
It is not a given that left to yourself, you'll come to the end of your life and find gain. In fact, what the preacher would say, the author of Ecclesiastes is, if you're not careful, you will come to the end of your life, whether that's the end of 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, however many years, if you're not careful, you'll come to the end of your life and you'll look back and say, I spent the whole time under the sun chasing the wind. And I didn't catch it. And it wasn't gained to me. And at that point, it's too late. And the preacher doesn't want you to reach that conclusion at the end of your life. So, Sidney Greedness summarizes Ecclesiastes 8 like this. Ecclesiastes 8 is a passage particularly relevant for people who act unwisely and for those who think that wisdom should answer all the questions we have. And I like the way he summarizes this chapter. It's helpful for two groups of people, and maybe you fall into one or both, depending on the day. One, you may lack wisdom and need more wisdom, and this is a passage that offers you wisdom. Number two, you may have the mistaken idea, the wrong idea in your head, that if you could only be wise enough, everything would make perfect sense and everything in your life would simply fall into place. And Ecclesiastes 8 is saying, whether you're a fool of this kind or a fool of this kind, here's wisdom that you need for your life. So, here's the big idea. We need wisdom for our brief lives under the sun. Chapter 8, we're going to read it in parts. It is wide-ranging. It feels a little bit like it's all over the map, and it's a challenge to say, how can we lump all of these ideas and all these verses and all these passages under one heading? And I think what the preacher is saying to us is, you just need to be a wise person during your time on the earth under the sun. And here's some things that you need to know about. And I'll just give you a warning and a bit of a preview. If you think chapter 8 is all over the map, just wait until we get to chapter 10. Chapter 10, you will not believe how many points I have in my sermon on Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It's an amazing number, but we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. This, this evening we're looking at Ecclesiastes 8. So, uh, if you look at Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1, there's a couple of questions asked. Who is like the wise? And the way the question is written in the Hebrew, the answer is implied. The answer is no one. The wise are unique. They understand things that other people don't understand. Who's like the wise? Well, nobody compares to the wise. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And the implied answer is based on the first question. It's the wise know the interpretation of the thing. They're unique in their understanding about life under the sun. And they're the ones who have insight to the interpretation of a particular thing. If you look at the last part of verse 1... The preacher says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. It's an interesting verse. The preacher's connecting wisdom with your countenance. He's not saying to us that the prettier you are, the wiser you are. He's not saying when you put glasses on, you magically become wiser, although we often say that to people, don't we? They put glasses on and say, oh, you look so smart. Oh, you just got wiser. Amazing. 
But what the preacher is saying, I think, is something like this. Your facial expression, the way that you look, reveals something about you. And you know this is true. When you bump into a friend or a family member or a coworker or someone at school or a loved one, you can often tell what's going on in their life by their expression, by their face. And the preacher, I think, is simply saying that our faces reveal what's going on in our minds. And his conclusion is, who is like the wise? No one. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? The wise does. And a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So, look with me at Ecclesiastes 8, 2, 3, 4, and 5. It's the first group of verses that we're going to consider. Ecclesiastes 8, 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause For he, that's the king, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, who can say to the king, what are you doing? And the implied answer is nobody can say that because he's the king. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the uh, the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. So you understand when you read those verses that the preacher, living in Old Covenant, Old Testament Israel, lived under a monarchy. Most people on the face of the planet at this point in time would have lived under a monarchy. And so what the preacher is saying to us is we need wisdom as we relate to the government that God has placed over us. And in his particular setting, the government was a monarchy. And I think when he writes about how you ought to interact with the king in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, I think he's assuming that there is a king, that the king has been placed there by God, that the king is a godly king who fears the Lord, at least to some degree. And his advice is pretty simple. He says you should enjoy the king's presence when you have the opportunity to be in his presence. He says you shouldn't do evil because the king can punish evil, and you can't stop him from punishing evil. That's what God put him in place to do. He says you ought to rely on wisdom when you're in the presence of the king. And all of these things, what the preacher is saying, if you abstract it to the bedrock principle is, wherever you live, whenever you live, there will be a government of some kind, and you need to be wise in your relationship to that government. Now, here's the challenge for you and me. We don't live under a monarchy. So the details that he spells out here might have less specific application to us. And maybe you remember being in high school or college and taking some sort of civics class and you saw a graphic that looked something like this. All the different forms of government. There's democracy and there's dictatorship and you could add anarchy to this graphic and all sorts of things that might exist as human arrangements of government. You say, well, maybe we live under a constitutional republic or a constitutional democracy. There's people on the earth who live under a totalitarian government. People who don't live under the exact kind of monarchy the preacher lived under, but they do find themselves having relate to government in some way, shape, or form. And the principle that the preacher is laying out is you need to be wise as you relate to government. So how do we do that? Because we don't live under a monarchy. 
But I think one of the things you do, we've done this week after week after week, is you remember Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. It's also not the last book in the Bible. And the Bible has other things to say about how we ought to relate to government. So I'm about to give you a whole bunch of ideas really, really quick, thinking through the Bible before and after Ecclesiastes. The patriarchs. Patriarchs interacted in various ways with kings and kingdoms. I'm thinking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. These were men without a true home, but who interacted with governments, with kings, with kingdoms in various ways. Sometimes they were friendly. Sometimes they worked for these authorities. Sometimes they opposed these authorities. There's a variety of expression there. During Israel's monarchy, prophets were sent to rebuke the kings. I would just remind you that no government is above God, not even a monarchy. All human government is subject to God and to His laws and to His commands. Thirdly, during the exile, God's people, some of them, worked for pagan kings. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but Daniel... And Nehemiah, this is kind of a dirty word in Texas, but I'm going to say it. They were governmental bureaucrats. They worked for the state. And they worked for very wicked governments that did all kinds of terrible things. But that's what they did. And they didn't just boycott and stay home and protest out on the sidewalk with a picket sign or whatever. But they worked for these powers and they tried to have influence in these governments. What about the New Testament? It's a complex picture. The New Testament calls Christians to trust God's sovereignty, to pay their taxes. I know, pay your taxes. Honor those in power. Not to put bumper stickers on your car or wave flags in your yard cursing government officials. You understand what I'm saying? Trust God's sovereignty, pay your taxes, honor those in power, and pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders that they would come to know the one true God and that we would be allowed to live quiet, dignified, godly lives under their rule. Last, we'd be remiss if we didn't say that the New Testament does call Christians to obey God over man. And there's a point in the book of Acts where the government tells the apostles to do one thing, but Jesus has told them to do the other thing. And the apostles say, we recognize you as the governing authorities, but we have to obey God, not man. You are not above God. Your law is not above God. What I'm saying to you is this is a complex picture. And it requires wisdom. And being a wise person doesn't always mean that you can just give a three-step process for what you ought to do in any given situation but it means that you are wise and discerning biblical principles so that when you find yourself in a unique situation, you can apply those principles in a unique way. You live in a country, just quick side note, where your relationship to government in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years could be very different than the relationship of Christian people to their government 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the past. So you can't just say, well, that's what grandpa did. This is what you have to be a wise person. And I think that's what the preacher's saying in this section. As you think about the king, he lived under a king. That was the government. You need to be a wise person. Now, look at the next verses. Ecclesiastes 8, 
beginning in verse 6. He says, there's a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. I think the preacher is saying this. We need wisdom to admit that we don't know the future, nor can we control the future. We don't know it, and we can't control it. Look at verse 6. He talks about there being a time and a way for everything. Does that remind you of anything we've talked about in Ecclesiastes? Maybe chapter 3? There's a time for everything under the sun, everything under heaven. And he lists out all these things that are going to happen. And one of the things we talked about is that list of things is just very, to us, unpredictable and seemingly random. We don't have any control over it. These things just happen, and there's a time for all of them. He says the same thing here in verse 6. We don't know the future. We can't control the future. We'd like to imagine that we know it and can control it. That's why we like back to the future with the time machine. And we say, if I could just go back and get my hands on that sports almanac, I could bet on all the games and I'd win all the money and Biff... He ruined it. He, he wasted all that money and all that mess, Biff's pleasure palace, all that. No, I wouldn't do that. I'd use it for a good purpose. And we love movies. All the movies about time travel, they just recycle back to the future over and over and over. It's the same thing. Oh, I've already seen this. Marty McFly, Biff Tannen. But we think about this. If I could go back, if I could know, then I would have more control. And Ecclesiastes is saying you don't know and you don't have control. We don't like either of those things, but they're true. I visited a church a few weeks ago. I was in the Dallas area for a SBTC meeting, and we went to this church. It was formerly First Baptist Church of Euless. Now it's called uh, Cross City Church. And this was their church uh, during a construction phase. They had these sort of three buildings separated by this big courtyard and they were out of space and they decided we, we want to build and just connect all these buildings, add a little bit of square footage. And so they made plans for years and years and years. They made plans and they saved their money and they wanted to be good stewards. They ended their capital campaign at the beginning of March 2020. They had all their plans ready to go. And then March 2020 happened. And they said, well, we didn't plan on that. The architect didn't plan on that. The bankers didn't plan on that. The church didn't plan on that. What do we do? We're not sure. They went ahead. They did the project. The Lord provided. It all worked out. But it's an example of something where you say, we've made all of these plans. We didn't know that was going to happen. We didn't anticipate that. What about the diagnosis from your doctor? Rarely do we anticipate those things. Many times they catch us off guard. What about the economy? Anybody know what oil is going to be worth in five years? Nope. Anybody have any control over what oil is going to be worth in five years? Nope, not in this room. 
Verse 8, you don't have power over the day of your death. You don't control that. You don't know it. You don't control it. Verse 8 says there's no discharge from war. Remember, he lives under a monarchy, and if the king decides to go to war, he calls you up and he says, hey, guess what? You're in the army now. We're going to war. You don't have control over that. Now, in the United States, we say, oh, we have control over that. You understand a lot of people in the world live under a form of government where they don't have control over that. There's a war going on on the other side of the world where people are being told, guess what? You're in the military now. Verse 9, he realizes as he thinks about life under the sun that man has power over man to his hurt. Human beings have the power to hurt other human beings. You don't know when that's going to happen. You don't have the ability to stop that from happening. That's why you have police and courts and prisons and all the rest to try to remedy that on the back end. But we don't know and we can't control. We need wisdom to know and admit that we don't know the future. We can't control the future. Just a few thoughts about this. We probably shouldn't boast about the future if this is true. Proverbs 27 is quoted in the New Testament in the book of James James says, don't boast about the future. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Now listen, sometimes people twist that and they say, don't make any plans, fly by the seat of your pants. The book of Proverbs is filled with injunctions and commands to be wise and to plan and to think about the future. Plan for the future, but don't boast about the future because you don't know it and you can't control it. Secondly, we should walk by faith and not by sight. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That's just fundamental, basic Christianity 101. We do not walk by sight, by what we know, but we walk by faith, believing God and trusting in His promises. All right, let's look at the next section of verses, beginning in verse 10. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, such wicked things. He says, this also is vanity. What does the word mean? Smoke, breath, mist, vapor, brief. It's brief. They used to go into the holy place. They used to carry out all their wicked deeds. He says, that's a vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So we need wisdom to live our lives in light of the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. He gives it away in verse 10a. He says, I saw the wicked buried. They died. They came to an end. But then he backs up and he tells you what he's wrestling with. He says, you know, I used to see them. I saw them buried. But I used to see them in the holy place, in Jerusalem, in the temple. The wicked came to church. And they showed up like all the rest of us. And we knew what they were doing. We knew their hearts weren't right. We knew that they were guilty of gross sin and testing the Lord. They showed up in the holy place. They were wicked. 
verse 11, he says, The sentence against an evil deed is not executed immediately. You can imagine the preacher sitting in the temple watching the wicked come and go, thinking, when are they going to get theirs? How long is God going to let this go on? Doesn't God know what's going on? I know what's going on. It's plain to see it. If you have eyes to see it, Ray Charles can see it. Everyone knows. Why doesn't God do anything about it? Well, he says, verse 10, in the end, he saw them buried. And then he circles around and he says, Though sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So let's think, think this through biblically. God's patience and God's kindness are meant to lead us to repentance. That's true for all of us in this room. There may have been a time in your life where you looked at the wicked in a holy place and thought to yourself, when are they going to get theirs? Just understand, Romans 2, that it is God's patience and His kindness and the fact that He does not, He does not, verse 11, execute speedily the sentence against every evil deed. The fact that God does not do that is meant, Romans 2, to lead you and I to repentance. Thank God in our lives that He did not execute sentence on every evil deed that we've committed immediately. This would be an empty room. God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. However, the wicked assumes that God doesn't exist, that He can't intervene, that He's forgotten, and that He doesn't see. He doesn't see. In Ecclesiastes 8, the phrasing is, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and he prolongs his life, and because this sentence, verse 11, is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This same problem is thought about in Psalm 10. And in Psalm 10, there's questions and statements that the wicked says to himself. As he's committing evil. The wicked person, the foolish person, thinking to himself while he commits evil. Number one, he says in his heart, I don't even think there is a God. He knows there's a God, but he says to himself, he's trying to convince himself there is no God. He says, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be moved. I've gotten away with it up to this point. Who's going to stop me now? And then eventually he says to him, God has forgotten and he doesn't see, which is an interesting thing to say if you don't think that there's a God. There's no God, he says. Five minutes later he says, well, there, maybe there is a God, but obviously he doesn't see or he doesn't know or he doesn't care or he's disinterested. The result is, verse 11, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Peter talks about this. He says, the scoffers question and laugh at the idea that Jesus will return. It's a similar idea in the New Testament. Peter says, in the last days there will come people scoffing, laughing, mocking you, saying, oh, Jesus is going to come back? Yeah, that's what Paul said. That's what Peter said. That's what Augustine said. That's what Tyndale said. That's what Luther and Calvin said. That's what Billy Graham said. They're all gone. 
Jesus isn't here. They laugh at it. They question it. They scoff at it. The Bible assures us that ultimately the wicked are like chaff and the Lord puts them in slippery places. I'll leave you to look up Psalm 1 and Psalm 73. In Psalm 1, the psalmist says that the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. In Psalm 73, Asaph is wrestling with this question. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. He's wrestling with the question, why doesn't God punish the wicked? Why do the wicked prosper? And when he goes to the sanctuary and he worships and he reframes his thinking biblically, scripturally, he comes away understanding God does set them in slippery places. It looks like they're not going to be moved, like their feet are on solid ground, but they're on slippery footing. And their day is coming. In Ecclesiastes, the conclusion is verse 12 and 13. Look, a sinner may do evil a hundred times and prolong his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear him, it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear before God. So, judgment is coming. Look at the next two verses, 14 and 15. It says, there's a vanity... That takes place on the earth. These are the verses that you cannot make sense of if you think of vanity as meaningless. Makes no sense. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We saw that same thing back in chapter 7 a few weeks ago. Chapter 7 verse 15 in my vain life. Not my meaningless life. My short life, brief life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. It's the same idea in verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Notice at the beginning of verse 14 he says it's vanity. And then he says it. And then at the end of verse 14, in case you missed it, he says, this is vanity. Verse 15 is the part that makes no sense if you don't understand vanity. He says, I commend joy. Commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go with him in all his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So, I think what he's saying here in verse 14 and 15 is that we need wisdom to know that we cannot prevent suffering in our lives. Now, the big idea of the passage is that you need wisdom. And one of the things you need to be wise to is that if you are a wise person, it will not stop suffering from coming into your life completely. Wisdom might save you from some of your own foolishness, some of the consequences of sin, but it will not save you from all suffering. Cancer rates are the same for wise people and foolish people, Christian people and non-Christian people. No difference there. You may say something like automobile accidents happen more for people who are driving drunk and they're foolish, and maybe that's true, but People who are just caught up in those sorts of accidents, there's no discrimination made to say, are you a wise person or are you a fool, foolish person? Those things happen to everybody equally. 
And yet most of us, when we suffer, instinctively, I'm not shaming you for this. I'm putting myself in the same boat with you. Most of us, when we suffer, we instinctively look to God and say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? It's just a human, instinctive reaction to suffering. God, why would you let this happen to me? As if God owes us a life of no suffering. She doesn't. Or as if God owes us an explanation for everything that he does or doesn't do. And he doesn't. And yet we instinctively ask this question. And I think what the preacher is saying, when you get to verse 15, the preacher is saying, look, you've got two choices. You've got two choices. You're going to suffer. That's not the choice. Choice number one is when you suffer, you can focus on it and you can become angry and bitter and obsess over it. And you'll be miserable. Or, what the preacher commends in verse 15 is what? Joy. I commend, I suggest you don't go down the route of bitterness, he says. I suggest you go down the route of being a joyful person. Why should you be a joyful person even when you're suffering? Because your life is a gift from God, he says. God comes into focus. And what he's given you is a gift. And you should be thankful for it. And you should enjoy it as much as you can. Not sinfully, but in a God-honoring way, you should enjoy life. I commend joy, he says. You understand, if you read that word vanity as meaningless, meaningless, you can make sense of verse 14 with meaningless, wrongly, but you can make sense of it. You could say, well, it's meaningless. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's just, you know, who knows? Just meaningless, random, whatever. But then, how can you make sense of what he says in verse 15? If it's all meaningless, why be joyful? There's no logic in that. But you understand, if you back up to verse 14 and he says, let me tell you something that lasts this long. In the scope of eternity, let me describe something to you that lasts that long. The righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And he says twice on either side, it's vanity, it's smoke. It's going to last just a blip on the radar of eternity. When you understand it that way, then verse 15 makes a lot more sense. When you understand how brief this injustice and this upside down nature of things is, he says, I commend to you joy because God's given you the gift of your life. Let's look at 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. So what I have on your notes is this. We need wisdom to know that we will never be able to discern the providence of God. And I decided this afternoon I don't like that sentence. But that's what's on your notes. So you can fill the blank in because I know some of you lose your mind if you miss a blank in there or something like that. 
And let me just give you maybe one of two ways you could edit that sentence. One way you could edit that sentence, I would feel better about it, is if you said, we need wisdom to know that we will scratch never and write rarely, rarely be able to discern the providence of God. Or if you don't like that edit, you could leave never and you could say, we need wisdom to know that we will never be able to discern the entirety of the providence of God. Wisdom is valuable. The preacher wants you to know that wisdom is valuable. But being a wise person doesn't mean that you will be able to answer every question that you have or that somebody has. It has limits. And he says clearly here, there's things about the way that God works. Man can't find it all out. You might toil in seeking. You can't find it out. You might be a wise man and you might claim to know, but you can't find it out. There's things that you're not going to be able to find out. I gave you some verses here. Job 11, one of Job's friends says, do you know the deep things of God? Do you know the limits of the Almighty? And the answer is no, you don't. Psalm 145 says that God's greatness is unsearchable. He's God and you're not. He's infinite and you're finite. His greatness is unsearchable. You'll never be able to fully comprehend it and take it in. Isaiah 55, well-known passage to many of you. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways aren't your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are higher than yours and my ways are higher than yours. You're never going to be able to fully discern what God is up to in the world. Now, how many of you walked in with one of these? You got one of these little boxes. It's amazing. I haven't heard one go off tonight, but somebody's is about to now that I said that. I don't know that we've made it through a Wednesday night without one of these boxes talking to us. Uh, these boxes, cell phone, I don't know if you know this, it gives you the illusion of omnipresence and omniscience, especially if you are connected in your little black box to Fox News alerts, CNN alerts, ESPN alerts, or social media, because the little black box you carry around makes you think, whether you realize it or not, it makes you think that you can be in touch with all your friends every day, all day. And it makes you think that you can know everything that's going on in the world. All the sports. How many of you got ESPN alerts about Dallas Cowboys running backs this week? Dallas Cowboys cut a running back. They're looking at this running back. What are they going to do? This baseball player got hurt in the World Baseball Classic. Can you believe Japan won? You get all these alerts and notifications and red bubbles and all this stuff. And it makes you think that you're everywhere and you know everything and you're not and you don't. You're finite. You're in one place. You don't even know everything that's going on in this place, much less all the other places. There's consequences that I don't, I'm not telling you to throw your little black box away. I'm just saying there's probably consequences that we don't fully understand yet to walking around thinking we can be everywhere and know everything when we can't. That's probably not good for us emotionally or mentally or spiritually. We're finite. Maybe with hindsight, you can understand some things that God was doing in your life. Maybe if you're a wise person, you can discern a few things 
that God was doing in your life. But I've shared this quote with you before from John Piper. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may, underline, may be aware of three. Has anybody ever asked you, what's God doing in your life right now? Well, uh, you kind of stumble through something, you know, try to sound spiritual. God's doing a lot in your life and in the world. And you're not going to get a Fox News alert about all of it. You're not going to get a Facebook notification to say, oh, check it, God's up to something now. You need to know. It's not how it works. Let's think about this biblically. The stories of Joseph and Ruth and Esther, which I'm not going to rehash, remind us that God works in mysterious ways. All of those people faced circumstances that were less than pleasant, less than ideal, not what they wanted for themselves, things that they didn't understand, things that they couldn't make sense of, the kinds of stuff that makes you look up to the heavens and shake your fist and say, God, why are you letting this sort of thing happen to me? I don't understand it at all. What is going on? And maybe they begin to put some of the pieces together in hindsight, but not all the pieces. The story of Jesus reminds us that God's mysterious providence resulted in our salvation. I think all these truths in some bring us to the truth of the gospel. We said you need wisdom to know how to live under government. The Bible describes Jesus as the king of kings ruling and reigning on the throne of the universe. And you'd better be wise about how to live under his reign. We talked tonight about we don't know the future and we don't control the future. But we know God who does know the future and does control it. We talked about the certainty of judgment. We need wisdom to live our lives in the certainty of judgment. The Bible's clear that we're all sinners and that a day of judgment is coming. There is a day of reckoning where things will be set right. And all the little circumstances you looked at in, in this life under the sun on the earth where the, the wicked were prospering and the righteous were suffering, it's going to be smoke. You're going to look back and say it lasted that long. We read Acts 2 and 4. Acts 2. What happened to Jesus in Jerusalem at the hand of wicked men happened according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He knew what was going to happen and he was sovereign over everything that happened. We saw the same thing in Acts chapter 4. What happened with Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews, Acts 4, it was only what your hand had predestined to take place. You knew it and you were in complete control of it. Not us, but God was and He is. And the call on our lives is simple. It's not to be able to figure it all out and not to be able to discern it all, but it's to walk by faith, not by sight. To understand that God does want us to be wise in our lives under the sun. Well, that doesn't mean we will know everything. It doesn't mean we'll have every answer to every question. It doesn't mean that we'll have control over things. It doesn't mean that suffering in our lives will come to a screeching halt. But it means that we understand the point of Ecclesiastes. How can you find gain for all your toil under the sun? You're here for that long. 
How can you come to the end of your life and know and be certain that you didn't spend your life chasing the wind? And the biblical answer, the New Testament answer, the gospel answer, is that to live is Christ, and to die is Christ. 